You are listening to Lighthearted, the official podcast of the United States Lighthouse Society. My name is Jeremy Dontremont. Welcome. My co-host today is Michelle Jewell Shaw, and we are coming to you from the kitchen studio of the Bluefish Boulevard Recording Complex in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Hi, Michelle. Hi, Jeremy. Thank you for having me at this beautiful recording session. And hello to our listeners. We are well into the fall season. In fact, we're getting really, really close to Halloween. In a little while, we're going to have a special segment featuring what I think is one of the most intriguing stories involving a possible haunting at an American lighthouse. Many lighthouses have ghost stories. Lighthouses symbolize lots of positive things for people, but it seems like they also have kind of a dark side. Yeah, it does kind of seem that way. Uh, Many writers have recognized that. Lighthouses have been used in many horror and science fiction stories and movies. You know, it's not well known, but when Edgar Allan Poe died, he was working on a story about a keeper at an isolated lighthouse on the English coast. He left fragmentary notes behind in his notebook. That would be something very interesting to read. Of course, there's the current movie, The Lighthouse, which is kind of a horror movie about two keepers going insane at an isolated lighthouse in Maine. I don't know that it's necessarily a horror story, but it definitely looks sort of dark. It definitely looks dark. I've been looking forward to that movie for for quite a while. So have I. Yeah, I can't wait to see it. Uh, and uh, actually, the writer-director, Robert Akers, is from right near, near here, from uh, Lee, New Hampshire, just a few miles away from where we are here in Portsmouth. That's pretty cool. I hear a crow. Uh, is, or, or is that a raven? Maybe it's, Maybe it's <laughs> right a raven. Out, right outside our recording studio here, right on cue here. I don't know if our listeners can hear it, but there's a crow or a raven uh, calling to us outside here. Anyway, I do want to talk about the movie The Lighthouse uh, in an upcoming ep- episode. Uh, We will get back to the dark side of lighthouses a little later in this episode, but for now, we're going to change the subject. On this podcast, we talk about lighthouses and their history and preservation all the time. That's the reason this podcast exists. But something we don't talk about often enough is the subject of lightships. A lightship is a ship that acts as a lighthouse used in waters that are too deep or otherwise unsuitable for lighthouse construction. They were also sometimes used at new offshore stations while lighthouses were being built. Lightships are not poor relatives of lighthouses. Lightships played a vital role in our navigation history, and their history is fascinating in their own right. The first lightship in the United States was established at Chesapeake Bay in 1820, and the total number in the U.S. peaked in 1909 with 56 locations marked. From 1820 until 1983, there were 179 lightships built for the U.S. government. The official use of lightships for navigation in the United States ended in 1985. It's estimated that there are 15 United States lightships left in existence today. Some are in museums and others are in private hands. Today we're going to focus on the U.S. lightship Chesapeake. The lightship Chesapeake, also known as the LS-116, LV-116, WAL-538, or WLV-538, is a museum ship owned by the National Park Service. It is operated by historic ships in Baltimore. The Chesapeake is a National Historic Landmark and one of a small number of preserved lightships. The lightship Chesapeake was launched in Charleston, South Carolina in 1930 designated LV-116 
or Light Vessel 116, it first served three years on Delaware's Fenwick Island Shoal Station. It then marked the entrance to Chesapeake Bay until World War II. During World War II, it served as an examination and guard vessel at the north end of the Cape Cod Canal, home ported in Sandwich, Massachusetts on Cape Cod. In 1945, LV-116 returned to the waters off Cape Henry, Virginia and continued to guide maritime traffic in and out of Chesapeake Bay for the next 20 years. The Chesapeake Lightship Station was replaced by an offshore light tower on the Chesapeake Light Station in late 1965. The lightship's final duty station was in Delaware, about 10 miles offshore, at the southern entrance to Delaware Bay, where a large automated light buoy replaced it in 1970. After leaving Delaware Bay in 1970, the vessel was moored in Cape May, New Jersey, until decommissioning in 1971. It was transferred to the National Park Service and was used as a seagoing environmental education classroom in Washington, D.C. until it was transferred to the City of Baltimore in 1982. Today the lightship is moored at Pier 3 in Baltimore's Inner Harbor, next to the submarine Torsk and Aquarium. It is open for visiting with a paid admission to the Historic Ships in Baltimore Museum, which was formed by the merger of the Baltimore Maritime Museum and the USS Constellation Museum in 2009. Greg Krausick has been the lead maintenance volunteer for the Lightship Chesapeake since 2006 and is the program coordinator for the Chesapeake chapter of the U.S. Lighthouse Society. Greg is a retired Navy captain and during his 25 years in the Navy, he was assigned to four ships with nine years of sea duty. All of his shipboard assignments were in engineering, except for his final ship assignment as the maintenance department head on an aircraft carrier. While on shore duty in Albany, New York in 1998, he became involved with the USS Slater, a World War II destroyer escort museum ship. This began his hobby of historic ship restoration and maintenance. He eventually became involved with the Chesapeake chapter of the U.S. Lighthouse Society and served as its president from 2016 to 2018. I had a chance to talk with Greg Krausick recently. Let's listen to that conversation now. I am speaking with Greg Krausick of the Lightship Chesapeake. Thanks so much for spending some time with me today, Greg. I, I really appreciate it. We don't talk about lightships enough on this podcast, and I do hope to do more of that in the future. So, Greg, lightships uh, tend not to get the publicity the lighthouses get, so our listeners might not be that familiar with them. Uh, what do you think uh, make lightships so important in our maritime history? I think it's important that... Um uh, a lot of people realize that lightships in the U.S. got a little later start than lighthouses, with the first uh, lightship uh, being funded and put in place in 1820. But um, initially in the 1800s, uh, and it's sometimes hard for people to visualize now, but you know there were no lighted buoys, and in fact uh, there were very few buoys of any type. So what a lot of the uh, ports throughout the United States, but especially in the Chesapeake Bay, found that uh, they could improve their maritime commerce if they would have some kind of light marking any kind of shoals or hazards of navigation, which would allow sailing ships to come into port or exit port in the evening hours, thus increasing the efficiency of the, the maritime trade. So initially, they were really nothing more than lighted buoys 
um, being small schooners manned by three or four people. And, and of course, nowadays with, with modern technology, it's hard for people to envision that. And in fact, and if you look at the nautical charts from the 1800s, they weren't listed um, as lightships. A lot of them were listed as buoy boats or light boats um, because of the size. But they were very important um, in the coastal waters for a number of reasons uh, because they just didn't have the technology for lighted buoys until very late into the 1800s. Finally, you know, the technology was catching on where they were putting different gas-powered uh, light, lights on buoys so that they slowly started replacing a lot of the light ships inshore right outside of harbors. And in fact, um, the last light ship that was inside the Chesapeake Bay um, was replaced by a lighted buoy in 1923. And, and you know, going, going back before then, there were as many as 15 light ships on station inside the Chesapeake Bay. Um, so there you go, by the, by the 1920s, almost all the light ships now are being replaced by buoys. But it was important because it kept the maritime commerce going in the evenings, so that allowed ships to be able to, to transit and get off on their next route. You know, having had some experience in the maritime world, you know, the, the, the catchphrase is, time is money when it comes to ships. So the sooner you can get offloaded, unloaded, and, and back on, um, the better for everybody. Then in the 1920s, there was a lot more newer technologies coming online, which really made them even more valuable as aids to navigation offshore, um, and principally the, the new high-frequency direction-finding system which the lightships were transmitting stations, and this increased the, the safety of ships doing um, open ocean voyages, especially if they were crossing the oceans, whether it be the Atlantic or the Pacific. The other really important thing that people don't realize um, when it comes to lightships is as a mobile aid to navigation, they could be put on station very quickly. And if you look through history, you realize that it sometimes it, it takes the administration months or years to approve a light station getting a lighthouse. Now, if that was the case for an offshore station, whether it's inside the bay or outside, it might take another year to build a lighthouse. Well, the, the lighthouse service and the Coast Guard could immediately uh, transfer a light ship to that station and get uh, the light beacon operating uh, while the lighthouse was being built. Um, and then as soon as the lighthouse was operational, it could come off station. And having that flexibility and, and ability to, to put a light on station right away, even if there was a temporary wreck, uh, made the light ships really flexible and very valuable. Well, they definitely played a huge role. I know, uh, you know, it's uh, it's hard to to sum this up uh, in a in a brief period of time. But if we could move on, uh, one of the to me one of the most fascinating aspects of lightships is the just the the life aboard lightships. What it was like for the the crews who sort served aboard them. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about what life was like uh, for those uh, crewmen who served aboard lightships? Um, I can can relay a little bit. Um, I've been very fortunate to um, get to meet some former crew members who um, come back to the lightship in later years, um, 
you know, I had one gentleman come back for his 80th birthday, and you know he hadn't been on board the ship um, since he left, you know, many years ago when he was 20 years old. But I can tell you, one of the the common um, themes I get from every crew member I talk to is that um, light ship duty under the Coast Guard, because I haven't haven't had a chance to meet anybody who was under the Lighthouse Service, but the crewmen either loved it or they hated it. <laughs> and there was rarely any in-between. And I, I thought that was really fascinating that there would be those two extremes. You know, when you stop to consider it under the Coast Guard, a tour of duty on a light ship was one year, and, and almost all of that time could be one year anchored on station wherever that was, but probably mostly on the offshore stations out in the Atlantic, I could see where it could be very boring. On the other hand, some people really love the solitude and are able to deal with that. For those people who didn't, um, as it turns out, the Coast Guard had designated lightship duty as extremely arduous sea duty, um, and because of that, they earned extra leave. During my time um, researching deck locks for the lightship Chesapeake, I was able to see that every other Wednesday, a Coast Guard cutter would come to deliver supplies and mail, food, water, whatever. Um, but also there'd be anywhere between two and four of the crewmen who would be reporting back from leave and then another small group um, departing on leave. Um, and they were always very meticulous about recording that in the deck logs. But what I've known is it, it noticed over the, the months looking through these that there were crewmen who left the ship as often as they could. And yet there was another small group who never left. Um, and I just thought that was pretty interesting, having been able to document that looking at the deck logs. Why don't we talk uh, specifically a little bit more about the lightship Chesapeake. Uh, it served in several locations, uh, of course, but we'll refer to it as the lightship Chesapeake from now on. Sure. Uh, when it was built in 1930, it was considered quite modern. Uh, what was uh, special about it when it was first built? The um, the lightship Chesapeake, or number 116, was part of a class of six lightships, which was actually the last group of lightships built uh, under the U.S. Uh, Lighthouse Service. But there were two things that made this class of lightship really state-of-the-art for the time. One was a very modern diesel-electric propulsion plant, where you had diesel generators that provided power to the main switchboard, and then from there, the power was directed to a main propulsion motor direct connected to the shaft, which gave you a lot of flexibility and a lot of economy. Um, and in fact, it's a very similar propulsion plant to those used in uh, diesel-electric locomotives on almost all the railways nowadays. Um, the other system was that um, high-frequency direction-finding transmitting equipment. It was one of the first light ships that was designed and built with that in mind where the equipment was put on right at construction and therefore was able to go immediately out on the, the open ocean stations and perform the duties. Those are the two aspects that really mark the, uh, the light ship 100 class that uh, Chesapeake was uh, part of. Are there any particularly dramatic or interesting stories in the history of the Lightship Chesapeake we can, uh, that you could tell our listeners about? There, there were a number of uh, times, a couple in the 30s and in the 60s, where the ship 
um, remained on station uh, as a hurricane came through, um, and and each time the the main anchor chain broke, which uh, can be a very um, interesting experience if you're a sailor on board. But in particular, one of those in the mid-30s that really um, strikes a chord with most um, seamen is that the secondary anchor, when they came after the hurricane was gone and they came to pull the anchor up, they found that the anchor had come off the bottom and had done such a motion that there was an overhand knot in the anchor chain. And for those of uh, us who have been out at sea on ships, when you try to imagine the motion that would be required for that to happen, um, just really is astounding. Um, And then they had to jury rate getting the anchor chain back on board with the overhand knot because it wouldn't come in the windlass. And that's probably the most dramatic um, although uh, talking to crewmen, probably the second most dramatic, which happened, unfortunately, very routinely, is that uh, when foggy weather would roll in, the ship's air-operated foghorn would be turned on. It was extremely loud, um, so the crewmen really could not sleep or, or function much nice. um, anywhere in the ship. But what would happen is that ship's would be homing in on the direction finding signal and it would bring them extremely close to the light ship so close that they would be topside normally with their life jackets on and a ship would come right out of the fog 50 feet away Mm. and go right by them and almost hit the ship wow um and you know talking to the crew you would love to hear that that was an isolated incident but as it turned out, it was um, a very frequent incident, which is why they all wore their life jackets, and even at night they would sleep or try to sleep topside when the foghorn was on. Wow. Uh, I've heard uh, lightship duty described as long hours of boredom punctuated by moments of sheer terror, <laughs> uh, and that, that seems to, uh, that's what you're describing, seems to, to fit that description. Absolutely. <laughs> If you could talk a little bit about uh, the volunteers uh, that you have there uh, uh, who work on the lightship, uh, who who are the volunteers who do the work on the lightship, and and can you tell us a little bit about what they actually do? Sure, be be happy to. I, I do want to mention that uh, the museum, Historic Ships in Baltimore, does have a a staff member assigned to do the supervision and management of the lightship Chesapeake and the submarine Torsk that are on Pier 3. Okay. Um, and then I work with him to coordinate um, all the volunteers that work on board. There's not a, not a whole lot. Um, I'm probably the, the single longest recurring volunteer, um, and we've had a number of volunteers for various reasons, you know, whether it be for a few months or a couple years, um, and then they uh, have to move on. Many of them get transferred to, with their jobs. However, second most on the recurring is uh, the Chesapeake chapter of the Lighthouse Society under their preservation program. Um, they schedule four work days a year on board the Chesapeake. And, and after you know 10 plus years of working with them, it, it's essentially the same group of about 15 people who come when they're available. Um, and these are people who are really dedicated to both lighthouse and lightship preservation. 
Um, they're currently managed by uh, Ann Papa, the preservation manager, mm-hmm. um, and she schedules all the volunteer work days on the lightship, Thomas Point Lighthouse, and any of the other lighthouses throughout the, the Chesapeake Bay that uh, she can arrange for the volunteers to do work on. And, and they're all just wonderful people who will essentially do anything that we ask. The real plus that they bring is the uh, the concentration of manpower on those work days. You know, we've had at sometimes 10, 12 volunteers, which makes it uh, really easy to, to take care of tasks that are manpower intensive, whether it be, you know, pulling all the, the stuff out of a storeroom um, and then being able to inventory all that equipment and and items and then go in and do the cleanliness, the, the, the preparation, the priming, and the painting of the space, and then restocking it the next month. They, they just can do a great deal of work. In particular, we are very fortunate to have a number of uh, volunteers with woodworking um, specialty. So uh, what pe- people may not realize is back in the 30s when they built ships, there was a lot of wood on board as opposed to Coast Guard and Navy ships now that have no wood on board. So whether it be the wooden ladders um, going up and down to the various decks or screen doors that the wardroom and the CO's cabin had or other miscellaneous equipment, you know, the woodworking uh, jobs that they've completed have helped dramatically both to, to keep it, the ship functional and improve the appearance. And at the same time, you know, if they we need general cleaning done or shining brass in the pilot house, these people are just really wonderful about doing whatever we need done. Um, and and I'm very fortunate to have that group in particular that uh, just I keep seeing, you know, what are now friends, you know, year after year. I've uh, known Ann Papa and some of the other uh, volunteers of the Chesapeake chapter of the U.S. Lighthouse Society. Great group of people. So yeah, you are lucky to have those those people. Now you mentioned earlier uh, that you've had contact with some of the past uh, crew members who served uh, actually served on the lightship. Can you say anything more about how they've actually contributed to the effort to preserve the ship? You know, anytime a former crew you know contacts me about visiting, you know, the first thing I ask is, well, do you have any photos? of you and the ship um, to be able to help us out with, uh, you know, uh, identification of equipment. Um, And we've been very fortunate. Uh, We had one former crew member from the late 90s, uh, Fireman Paul Bosco, um, showed up with about a dozen um, of those old Polaroid, same, you know, immediate photos of him, you know, standing next to the propeller in dry dock, Um, him, you know, sitting throughout the ship, um, working, doing things. Um, and, and it's wonderful, I mean, to see the, this young kid back in 1969. But just as importantly, you look in the background, and now you're going, oh, there used to be this piece of equipment here. We didn't know that that was on board. Um, and to, to what minor extent we can do restoration, you know, having those kind of photos are, are absolutely invaluable. In particular, um, one other individual who was a tremendous help um, before he passed on was a chief warrant officer, Bosun Tom Bernhardt. Um, he'd been the commanding officer of the lightship from mid-'68 to, to mid-'69, 
And although he never came and visited the ship, he was very active with answering questions that we would have on different equipment or on different spaces, what was inside the space, what was outside the space, where on board it would have been. And and he was really quick to answer any questions and help us via email. And that was absolutely invaluable, trying to figure out what the original configuration would have been, especially um, considering that the ship was used um, as a floating classroom for 10 years by the Park Service. You know, they operated the ship, got it underway, so they made a lot of equipment changes that would have been particular to the 70s and early 80s but would have never been found on board in the 60s. And having, you know, Warren Officer uh, Tom Bernhardt to to be able to help out answering those kind of questions was just a a real goldmine for us. One story in particular that um, Chief Warren Officer Bernhardt uh, relayed to me um, in relation to the ships that would almost hit them in the fog, um, after the first time it happened to him when he was commanding officer, um, he immediately ordered extra potatoes um, be brought out on the supply boats that would come out. And every time that that happened, um, he ordered his crew to throw these extra potatoes at the pilot house of the ship that would almost hit them to try to get their attention and let them know that they almost hit a light ship. Um, <laughs> and he was very adamant about uh, making sure that happened every time because it happened way too often. <sighs> <laughs> wow. What can visitors expect to see when they come to visit the, the uh, lightship Chesapeake? The ship itself is in um, pretty good condition considering it's almost 90 years old. Visitors uh, are free to walk around the, the top side, uh, main deck, down one deck, walk around the spaces, see the major compartments such as the wardroom, the officer staterooms, the crew staterooms, the galley. They're not allowed to go below decks because of the the steepness of the ladders, especially in the engine room. But we've arranged a special location where you can look down into the engine room and get a really good view of um, three out of the four diesel generators for propulsion. And, um, you know, like like most comments, I get uh, you get the real engine room smell, which is the diesel engine smell. And then uh, the forward rec room, um, which was a cruise lounge, has been turned into a uh, museum-quality display area where you can see a lot of photos of the lightship when it was being constructed in 29 and 30. They have photos where you can see the ship with the Fenwick marking, the Chesapeake marking, the Delaware marking. In particular, the Coast Guard was very diligent about marking the transition. So there's a number of photos from September 1965 when the Chesapeake light tower was activated and they would have a helicopter taking photos of the light ship and the light tower together. Um, and again, the same thing when uh, in 1970 at the Delaware, when the new buoy was put in place, there's a number of photos uh, of that. We also have some displays that show uh, what the thousand white light bulbs look like that were in the, uh, the modern beacon um, on the aft mast. Some other you know, photographs and displays about what life was like. Um, And in particular, there's a detailed description of the sinking of the lightship Nantucket, 
um, which was number 117 in a sister ship in the 30s. Then, of course, up to the flying bridge, the pilot house, so they can get a good idea of what it was like to be able to stand there and navigate the ship. So it's uh, it's a lot of fun. The yeah. plus is on the volunteer weekends um, when we're there, you know, we are working throughout the ship, and we can answer a lot of questions that visitors have when they're looking at something. Um, and, and I wish we could do more volunteer work days, but currently that's only one Saturday a month. Um, but we get a lot of questions that uh, and able to rela- relay a lot of stories to people that uh, really makes the ship come alive for them. Can you tell us a little bit more about what else there is to see at the Historic Ships in Baltimore Museum? What they consider their primary artifact is the uh, the sailing frigate Constellation, and it's not a sister ship to the Constitution, which is up in Boston, although they, they thought it might be for a lot of years. But it was a newer vessel built in the mid-1800s, um, served in the Civil War and, and afterwards. So it's one of the, you know, an original three-masted sailing frigate. But also there's the, the submarine Torsk, uh, a World War II submarine, um, which is... Uh, moored right above, right in front of the, the lightship Chesapeake, and it was a, a late World War II submarine that served up through the 60s. Moving over to Pier 5, they have the Coast Guard Cutter Taney. It's a Treasury-class uh, cutter, 300, 325 feet long, and it one of its distinctions is it's the last warship that was in Hawaii um, during the Pearl Harbor attack on 7 December 41. And uh, although it was in Honolulu Harbor, not Pearl Harbor, um, it actually engaged and shot down some Japanese aircraft. Um, and then certainly last but not least, at the end of Pier 5 is the 7-foot Noah Lighthouse. And certainly that's where I make sure I point everybody that comes to the lightship so that they can get a look at the other lighthouse. Um, and one of its distinctions is it was the only round cottage-style lighthouse uh, that was built in the Chesapeake Bay, and we're thinking that maybe even um, in the entire East Coast. And uh, the city owns that now, and we maintain it for them. And then there's uh, a lot of displays in the lighthouse, in particular the story of the lighthouse keeper Thomas Steinheist, who uh, during a severe storm in uh, 1933 rescued a number of sailors off a tug that sunk nearby, um, literally got in a boat with his son, who was keeping the lighthouse duty with him on a, on a, the side, um, and they rowed out and saved a number of the crew members, and he was awarded a silver life-saving medal. Oh, that is a really, really famous story. How can our listeners learn a little bit more about the uh, lightship Chesapeake? The, um, the historic ships in Baltimore um, has a website, historicships.org, and they have a section on each one of the ships. If you're looking for specific information on just the lightship Chesapeake, I manage a, a light uh, lightship specific website, um, which would be all one word, lightship116-538.org. And it's uh, people are looking for information on all lightships in general. This website for that is the one run by the Lightship Sailors Association, and that would be uscglightshipsailors.org. And that's a particularly good website because they have the histories on every single lightship that was uh, in operation in the U.S., and it's, 
extremely important because when the Coast Guard Historian's website was revised a couple of years ago, the new website did not include the same detailed information about lightships that it used to. So that lightship sailors uh, website um, can really be a big education for people about all the different lightships in the U.S., Greg Krausick, I really, really appreciate your spending uh, this time with us today. I hope lots of our listeners will get down there and see the lightship and all the other things there are to see at the historic ships in Baltimore Museum site there. So thank you so much. This is fantastic. It's really been fun talking to you. Thank you. Yeah, it's my pleasure. I really appreciate the opportunity to, to help educate people about lightships. For our history segment today, we're going to tell you a ghostly tale about a lighthouse on Long Island Sound. The shoal that extends more than a mile from Penfield Beach in Fairfield, Connecticut, was a scourge to mariners until a lighthouse was built on Penfield Reef in 1874. The style of the handsome building is considered Second Empire, with a cast iron tower on a stone dwelling with a mansard roof. The saddest incident in the lighthouse's history took place on December 22, 1916. Keeper Fred Jordan left the lighthouse at 20 minutes past noon that day to row ashore. There were high seas and strong winds, but the keeper badly wanted to join his family for Christmas and to give his handmade presents to his children. Assistant Keeper Rudolf Eiten watched from the lighthouse as Jordan pushed his boat through the waves. About a hundred yards from the lighthouse, Jordan's boat capsized. Jordan clung to the boat and signaled for Eiton to lower the station's remaining boat and come to his aid. Eiton tried valiantly to do so, but the steadily increasing waves and wind made it impossible. He finally got underway about 1 p.m., but by that time, Jordan had drifted a mile and a half to the southwest. Eiton said later, quote, I did my level best to reach him, but I hadn't pulled more than a half mile when the wind changed to the southwest, making a headwind and an outgoing tide against which I couldn't move the heavy boat. I had to give up and I returned to the station in a regular gale. From the station I sent distress signals to passing ships, but none answered. At three o'clock I lost sight of the drifting boat. The poor fellow's body wasn't found until three months later. He was a fine fellow, was Fred." Eiton was absolved of any blame for Jordan's death. He was promoted to head keeper and would remain for more than a decade. A few years later, a writer visited Keeper Eiton at the lighthouse and a conversation in the wee hours of the morning turned decidedly macabre. They say that all lighthouse keepers are mad, said Eiton, as a preface to the following chilling tale, told against the background of the whispering wind and the gentle wash of the waves. Eiton recounted the accidental death of Keeper Jordan, then continued. Quote, Some days later, on what was one of the worst nights in the history of Penfield, and the waves were dashing over the lantern, I was awakened, I was off duty, by a strange feeling that someone was in my room, Sitting up, I distinctly saw a gray phosphorescent figure emerging from the room formerly occupied by Fred Jordan. It hovered at the top of the stairs and then disappeared in the darkness below. Thinking it was the assistant keeper, I called to know if anything was the matter, 
but he answered me from the lens room that all was well. Much puzzled, I went downstairs, and to my consternation I saw lying on the table the logbook of the lighthouse, with the page recording the drowning of poor Jordan staring me in the face. I have seen the semblance of the figure several times since, and so have the others, and we are all prepared to take an affidavit to that effect. Something comes here that we are positive. There is an old saying, what the reef takes, the reef will give back. Poor Jordan's body was recovered after his drowning, and in the pocket of his coat was found a note addressed to me, which he probably forgot to leave before he started on his fateful ride in that rough sea, instructing me to complete the entries of that morning, the day he died, as they were not brought up to date." Unquote. An article in the Bridgeport Public Library claims that, on stormy nights, quote, the specter of the reef is said to be flitting among the rocks, poised on the rail of the gallery that surrounds the lantern, or swaying as if in agony among the black and jagged rocks that surround the base of the light, end quote. The article tells the story of a power yacht that ran into trouble but was piloted through the breakers to safety by a strange man who suddenly appeared amid the surf in a rowboat. And then there were the two boys who were fishing near the reef when their canoe capsized, throwing them into the sea. A man appeared from out of the rocks and pulled them to safety. When they came to, they entered the lighthouse expecting to thank their savior, but he was nowhere to be found. One of the last Coast Guard keepers said that one night he heard what he thought was the other keeper walking up the stairs, so he decided to get up and join him for coffee. He got out of bed and realized that the other keeper hadn't gotten up yet. He said that he had other visitations after that, but stopped getting up to have coffee with the ghost. That's all for this edition of Lighthearted. Thank you to our guest, Greg Krausick of the U.S. Lightship Chesapeake and the Chesapeake chapter of the U.S. Lighthouse Society. You can learn more about the lightship at historicships.org. As always, many thanks to the staff and volunteers of the U.S. Lighthouse Society. If you enjoy this podcast, please show your support by becoming a member of the U.S. Lighthouse Society or by making a donation. Learn more by going to uslhs.org. You can also learn more about the amazing domestic and international tours the Society offers and all the other resources available on the website. Also, if you listen on Apple Podcasts or somewhere else where you can rate or review this podcast, please do. And please share the word about Lighthearted on social media. Thank you to everyone everywhere who works for the preservation of lighthouses in their history. Happy Halloween, and as always, thanks for listening, and keep a good light. Shine.